if I haven't met you before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the student ministers here uh, at church, and I'm very excited to be bringing to you uh, such an amazing and wonderful chapter of the Bible where Jesus raises a dead man. Now, you probably know the saying, uh, it's fairly common, there are two constants in life, death and taxes. And, and we have a chuckle at that, the funny bit is taxes. Haha, <laughs> the tax man always gets his cut, we can't get away from it. But it's, it's a bit of a morbid saying, isn't it? Like, death is inevitable. One day we will all face death. And it's quite terrifying because we don't know what faces us on the other side. It's the ultimate unknown in life. I was part of a church once that surveyed the community and they asked one question, it was a short survey, they asked, if you could ask God one question, any one question, what would you ask? And overwhelmingly, the top response was, what happens after we die? People want to know the answer to this question. They want to know what faces them after death but they have no idea. They wish they could know, but they feel like there's no actual way to find out. Stacks of people have tried to come up with answers in the past. Uh, For instance, the atheists will say that there is nothing after this life. There's no afterlife, there's no reincarnation, there's nothing. This world is just protons and electrons and some other trons, and that's it. Nothing apart from that. No soul, no spirit, Nothing to survive after your body dies. You're just here one minute and you're gone the next. But that's not a very satisfying answer, is it? No, that that won't do at all. And so people, they, they turn elsewhere and they often turn to religion and see what religion has to say about what happens after this life. Some religions say that we're reincarnated, that we die and then we're made alive again. We come alive in the same world, uh, maybe as a human, but maybe as something else, as an animal or a tree or, or something, but we cycle back through life in this world. Others say that once we die, we, we become this spirit and we go to this kind of weird heaven place where we all have halos and wings and we play harps all day. Unless you're not good enough, and then you go to the hot place, where you get to party with all your friends who are not good enough as well. But but really, how do we know that any of these are right? How do we know that any of them are true? We can't know unless, well, unless God tells us, the God who created the whole world, unless He comes and tells us, I created you and I created life and this is what happens after life. Or if someone goes there and comes back and tells us. If someone dies and comes back to this life and says, hey, I know what happens after this life. Well, here's the astounding thing about John chapter 11. We get both of those things. We see both of those things in Jesus. Jesus is the God who comes and tells us what happens after this life, and then He raises a dead man back to life. And at the end of the book of John, Jesus Himself dies and raises back to life, and he tells us what happens next. So this is an astonishing, and astounding, a wonderful chapter of the Bible, and so I urge you to pay close attention to what it has to say, because this isn't just a matter of life and death, it's a matter of life after death. 
Yeah? I came out of that all by myself. Thank you for those laughs. How about I pray for us, pray that we'd have sharp minds and attentive minds and open hearts. Father God, thank you so much for your word to us in John chapter 11. Thank you that Jesus comes as a man who is your son and reveals to us who you are. Help us now as we listen to be focused, to be attentive, to be discerning. Help us to hear you speak to us now and I pray that you would transform our lives and our hearts. Amen. All right, let's get straight into it. Uh, If you have your Bibles in front of you, that'll be very helpful. If you've got one of these blue Bibles, page 871 in John chapter 11. So straight away, in verse 1, we are told that this man, Lazarus, is sick. He's ill. There's something wrong with him. Um, And it kind of sets us up for something that Jesus has already done in the book of John. Jesus heals a stack of people to this point. There's a number of healings. And so we might be prepared for Jesus to heal Lazarus. Lazarus is sick, so Jesus will heal him. Um, And in the other healings, Jesus didn't know the person. He just kind of stumbled upon that person or the person was brought to him. Jesus didn't know them. But here in John chapter 11, Jesus knows Lazarus. In fact, in verse 5, it says Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters. And so, surely Jesus will heal Lazarus, right? When we hit verse 4, we're not surprised to hear Jesus say, this sickness will not end in death. Because it really sounds like Jesus will go and heal his friend Lazarus and show that he is powerful and that he is God and all those wonderful things. So the question is, why does Jesus wait two days? Why does Jesus wait two days before going? Did you see that bit in verse 6? Surely, as soon as he hears that his friend is sick, Jesus will go straight away to end his suffering, to heal him, to show that Jesus loves people and has power. Well, there are two reasons why Jesus waits. There's two of them. We've already come across one of them in verse 4. Let me read it for you. When Jesus heard this, sorry, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not lead to death, will not end in death, No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus waits two days for the sake of God's glory. Jesus waits two days for the sake of God's glory, so that God and God's Son, who is Jesus, might be glorified. Now, usually when we talk about glory and God's glory in John, it's a little different to what we might expect. Jesus isn't talking about something that we have that we give to God. Like, we have glory and we give it to God and now God has more glory. It's not like that. Rather, when John talks about God's glory, he talks about um, it being revealed to us, like the curtains open up and we get a peek at God in heaven and we see just how glorious He is. So we don't give something to God, but we see God for who He truly is in all His glory. Jesus is saying that what He intends to do Jesus is saying that why he waited two days is so that people can get a peek at God and see how wonderful and glorious he is. And so people will get a peek at who Jesus really is. Not, the, not just simply a man, but God himself. What happens in John chapter 11 reveals to us God and his Son. Now the second reason Jesus delays, it's in verse 15. It's so that we might believe. 
so that we might believe in Jesus. Let me read from verse 14 for us. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Why is he glad? So that you might believe. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus reveals to us who God is. He shows us God the Father and he shows us his own glory and our response to that should be that we believe in him. When we see who Jesus is, we would believe in him. That's why Jesus waits two days. That's why Jesus waits until Lazarus is dead before he leaves. He knows that if he left straight away and and somehow managed to get there in time before Lazarus died and he healed him, then God would not be revealed in the same way. Yes, God would be revealed, Jesus would show that He's the Son of God and He's powerful, but He's already done that. He wants to show something even bigger, even more wonderful. He knows that if He'd gone and healed Him, people might not be convinced to believe in Him in the same way. And that's why Jesus chooses to go back to Judea. Did you see that? His disciples said, don't go, Jesus, because people there are trying to kill you. Jesus is convinced that it won't happen, but even more so, he wants to go for God's glory and so that we might believe. Come, come see what Jesus says in verses 9 and 10. So, so Jesus says, let's go. The disciples say, no, people are trying to kill you. And Jesus says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. So Jesus goes into this dangerous place where he could be killed for God's glory so that we might believe, but he goes knowing he walks in the light of his Father's will. He knows he walks in the light of God's purposes for him. That's what he's talking about when he talks about light and darkness. You see, Jesus knows he can only do what God has planned for him. He will not die a moment before God intends him to die. And so Jesus is confident that he'll be able to reveal God's glory and he will be able to show us that we should believe in him if he goes to Judea. And it's worth pausing here for a second because Jesus' confidence actually shows us we can be confident too. Nothing happens in this world outside of God's plan. Everything in the world might seem like chaos. We might be hurt, suffering, finding life hard. When everything's going wrong, when our friends are sick and dying, just like Jesus, we are not living outside of God's purpose for us. We can't escape God's purpose for us. And so in Romans 8.28, Paul says that God works all things, all things for the good of those who love him. What's the good that he works for us? Verse 29 tells us that it's to be transformed into the likeness of his son. Even in the bad things, God is growing us to be more like Jesus. We are not outside of God's purpose. God is always in control. And that is a great comfort for us. That is a wonderful comfort for us. But let's come back to John 11. As we've said, everything that Jesus does in this chapter reveals to us God's glory and Jesus' own glory and calls us to believe in Him. And so, as we go on, we need to expect that Jesus will do those two things. He will show us who God is. 
He will show us who He is. He will reveal His glory and we can expect that He will call us to believe in Him. He will call us to trust in Him. And so here's a lesson that we need to hear loud and clear today. If you want to know God, if you want to know who He is and what He is like, then we come to Jesus. Because Jesus shows us, Jesus reveals to us God. Because Jesus is sent by God, Jesus knows God, but more importantly and more significantly, Jesus Himself is God. Jesus can reveal God and Jesus can reveal the Father because Jesus is God. He is the Son of the Father. If you want to ask God what happens after this life, then come to Jesus. Jesus tells us. A lot of people have a lot of different ideas about who Jesus is and what His message is about. Some are more accurate than others. I like to think, having spent some time in church here, that often when we talk about Jesus, we get it pretty right, but we're not perfect. So don't take anyone's word for it. Not even mine. Don't well, listen to me now, but, but then test what I say. Go to the record of Jesus' words, which we have in the Bible. Go see what Jesus says yourself and test it. This, this book that we're reading, the book of John, it's one of four uh, biographies of Jesus we have in the Bible. It is absolutely worth spending your afternoon reading through the biography and seeing what Jesus has to say, seeing what Jesus has to say about himself and God and finding out for yourself. If you've never read the Bible before, this book is an excellent place to start. If you start right at the start, it'll be a little while before you get to Jesus. So jump in at this point at John. Check it out for yourself. Make up your own mind and see what Jesus really has to say. And I think you'll be astounded by how much He understands this world and life and so how much we can be confident in what he says about God. Jesus reveals to us his Father and then calls us to believe in him. All right, let's keep moving on. We've seen that Jesus delays, now we're going to see that Jesus weeps. Jesus has told us he'll reveal God to us and that he wants us to believe in him and so he heads down to this town called Bethany which is where Jesus lived Sorry, not Jesus, Lazarus lived. Jesus, on his way, he gets close to the town, but he isn't quite in the town yet. And one of Lazarus's sisters, Martha, she runs out to him and she meets him just outside the town. And they have this really significant conversation. And we'll come back to that conversation because it's really important. But after this conversation, Martha runs off and gets her sister Mary and Mary comes and speaks to Jesus as well. And I don't know if you noticed this, but... Mary and Martha say the exact same thing to Jesus. They both say, in verse 21 and 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But we know that Jesus wasn't there because he had a bigger purpose. He chose not to be. Jesus wasn't there so he could show Mary and Martha who he is and call them to believe in him. After his conversation with the two sisters, Jesus sees the sadness of Mary. He sees her weeping and mourning. And then he looks around and he sees all the Jews who have come and visited them to comfort them mourning as well. And Jesus has these two reactions. And they, at first, can seem kind of at odds with each other, but I think they fit together. So, firstly, we see in verse 33, 
When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, where it says deeply moved in spirit, that's actually, it's not quite right. It's not strong enough. It's more like he was outraged in spirit. The word that they translate there in the original Greek, it refers to the kind of snorting sound that a horse makes in anger and frustration. It's this word about anger and outrage, not, not just about sympathy. There's anger there. Jesus is outraged at something. We'll come back to what it is, because we need to look first at his second reaction. Firstly, he was angered, he was outraged at something. But secondly, Jesus weeps. He weeps in front of everyone. He's moved to compassion. He isn't just angered, he's sympathetic, full of compassion and love for these people. How is it that Jesus can be both angry and compassionate at the same time? This is, this is trouble that lots of people have with the Bible, because the Bible talks about Jesus having compassion for us and anger at us at the same time a lot, and people don't see how it makes sense. But it's actually fairly easy to figure out. All you have to do is go to someone's house at five o'clock in the evening when they're trying to feed their toddler dinner. This is my life at the moment. Straight up, I'll tell you, I love my boy Sam. I'll do anything I can to make sure that uh, he's getting the food he needs to grow big and strong and things like that. But if he spits out another mouthful of food and throws it across the room, I think I'm going to burst a vein. I love him deeply, but I am angry at the way he's behaving. We can be compassionate and angry at the same time, and so can God, and so can Jesus when he sees what's happening here. Outside of Lazarus' tomb, Jesus is outraged and moved to compassion. But why? At what? Surely Jesus isn't upset that his friend Lazarus has died because Jesus knows he's just about to raise him back to life. That wouldn't make any sense. Well, Jesus isn't upset at Lazarus' death. He's upset at death itself. He's upset at death itself. You see, Jesus knows that death, it's not a natural part of life. It is not a natural part of life at all. In fact, it's an intruder into this world. People were made to live, not to die. And so it's really important to get. Death is a great evil. Death is the enemy of man. It's an intruder into this world. It does not belong. It's not natural. It's unnatural. It's ugly. It's devastating. It's awful. And so Jesus is angered and saddened that there is death in this world. He sees its destruction, he sees its pain, and he is moved. But Jesus, he has a plan to end death once and for all. He will defeat it. He will take away the sting of death by offering people life forever, by raising the dead And to see Jesus' plan, we need to go back to that conversation Jesus has with Martha. So we're going to go backwards a little bit. As I said, the first words that fly out of Martha's mouth when she meets Jesus on the road, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even though she says she still trusts in Jesus, and she she does, she doesn't expect that he will bring her brother back to life. Because in verse 23, when Jesus says, your brother will rise again... Mary does what any good Jew would do. She says, yeah, I know, I know that's right, he'll be raised again on the last day in the resurrection. 
Martha believes the Old Testament prophets when they say that there is a day coming, the last day, when God will raise all the dead back to life. But Martha misses one key thing, and this is key to the whole chapter, to understanding everything that happens here. It's key to seeing how Jesus reveals God's glory to us. It's in verse 25. Let's read it together. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha believes in the resurrection while the resurrection was standing right in front of her. The resurrection was speaking to her. This is what Jesus reveals to us. Jesus reveals that he is the son of the God who raises the dead. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He says that whoever believes in him, even though they face physical death, we all face physical death, the one who believes in him will be physically raised. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And verse 26 takes this a step further takes this to where no Old Testament prophet took it before. If we believe in Jesus, then we have already been raised from the dead. Verse 26 says, And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. If we believe in Jesus, we have already been raised from the dead. Not physically, that comes in the future, but spiritually raised from death. Right now. Right at the moment we believe in Jesus, we experience this resurrection. And that's astonishing, right? That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Are we to just take Jesus' word for this? If so, it's Jesus' word versus the word of the man who believes in reincarnation. Or it's Jesus' word versus the word of the atheist who says there's nothing after this life. Well, Jesus proves it. He puts his money where his mouth is. How? By raising the dead. He raises the dead for this crowd here in John 11. And at the end of the book of John, he himself is raised back to life. So Jesus comes to stand outside this tomb. And even though Lazarus has been in the grave for four days, which means there's no doubt in anyone's mind that Lazarus is dead, he's not having a long nap, he's not in a coma, he is dead. Even still, Jesus stands out the front and he calls out, Lazarus, come out. And just like that, Lazarus comes out. He walks out of the tomb, tripping over his burial clothes, alive and well. And it's really interesting that Jesus, sorry, that John comments on the burial clothes. Because John comments on someone else's burial clothes later on. He comments on Jesus' own burial clothes. Lazarus comes out of the tomb, still wrapped up, still bound with the cloth over his face because Lazarus is raised back to mortal life. He's raised back in his mortal body. He awaits death again. It's actually more like he's been resuscitated. But when Jesus is raised back to life, the burial clothes are left behind in the tomb. The face mask is folded up and left in the corner. Jesus is raised not in a mortal body, but in an eternal body, in a glorious resurrection body, to never, ever die again. You see, Jesus is raised in a more glorious way, 
And so that if we trust in Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, we are raised from the dead. Not physically, spiritually. And that spiritual resurrection that we experience makes us sure that we will be physically raised from the dead on that last day. If we trust in Jesus, we have spiritual life right now. Our resurrection has already begun. And so that means we can be confident on the last day we will be physically raised. If we wait till after this life, if we keep pushing back, dealing with Jesus and what he has to say, it will be too late. We don't know when we'll die. One day we'll be gone and it will be too late. The only way to secure future resurrection is to secure it now through Jesus. We must deal with Jesus now on this side of the grave. Uncertainty about what happens after this life, it leads people to do a whole bunch of things, but mostly living for this life now. They don't know what comes next, so they put all their eggs in the basket of this life. You see, some people, they might focus on their retirement. If I work hard for 30, 40 years and I save up, I'll be able to retire comfortably. And, and many people in this world will go, yeah, they're playing the long game, they know what they're doing. But in the light of eternity, in the light of the resurrection, that is severely short-sighted. They're living for this life and not the next. Some will try and squeeze every moment they can out of this life. They'll, they want to experience everything they can. And I think this is particularly the problem of 18 to 30-year-olds. This is our temptation, this is our problem. Not that I'll be an 18 to 30-year-old for very long. We want to experience things and so the cycle happens and I see this cycle over and over again. I'm going to work to save up so that I can enjoy this next experience and once that's done, I'll go back to work and save up so I can enjoy this next experience. That's even more short-sighted than the man who lives for retirement. It's living for this life and not the one to come. They would rather experience this life and forsake experiencing the next. It's tragic. Other people might be a bit more others-focused than this, right? They They might try and provide for their families now, and that's a good thing. They might try and get their kids into a good school, save for a house in the nice neighbourhood. But what's best for our families isn't a good education. It's not a quiet cul-de-sac where you can ride your bike. It's knowing Jesus. It's knowing that Jesus is the only way to true life, the only way to resurrection. Did you catch what Thomas said in verse 16? After Jesus says that Lazarus is dead and says that we're going to him, Thomas says, in verse 16, flick back to it, let us also go that we may die with him. Let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas doesn't realise how well he spoke there. To be a follower of Jesus means to die. It means to die to your old self. You must die before you're raised to life. We die to our old motivations and our old desires. We die to this world and what this world loves. We no longer live for retirement or for experience, or even for our families. We live for the next world, and so that our families might have life in the next world, and then our friends might have life in the next world, and that everyone we know might have life in the next world. We don't live for that bigger paycheck or the fourth bedroom. We don't live to see that concert, 
or to travel to every continent in the world. No, we live for the life to come. What we need is Jesus. What we need is to secure our resurrection now. Die to our old self so that we can begin a new spiritual life. I hope you've seen today that Jesus does reveal to us God. He reveals to us a God who will raise us back to life, but only if we believe in Jesus. Only if we believe. Will you believe? Will you be raised to new life today? Or will you live your life for now? Forsaking the one to come? How about I pray? Father God, we praise you that you are the God who raises the dead. We praise you that you are the God who gives eternal life freely. Help us to believe. Help us to believe in Jesus, your Son. Help us to trust in Him and not be deceived by this world that says only here and now matters. Help us to play the truly long game by trusting in your Son, Jesus. Amen.